0: Locked On Dolphins, your daily Miami Dolphins podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network your team every day. Welcome to another episode of Locked on Dolphins. I am your host Kyle Krabs and today's episode is brought to you by Visa. Help support your local businesses whether they're your corner stores, coffee spots, or favorite shops. Local businesses have always been in your corner supporting you and your community but right now more than ever local businesses need our support so let's be there for them. The next time you go shopping, make the choice to shop at local businesses and look for the contactless symbol and tap to pay with contactless Visa to help support your community because where and how you shop matters. Visa, everywhere you want to be, official partner of the NFL. Today's show is all about you guys. Once again, we did so much volume with topics for Power to the Pod that we're double-dipping. Yesterday's show was about 35 minutes in length, and we didn't even get to any of the Twitter questions. That's how much you guys want to talk about, how many different angles you guys have to bring to the table. So I decided we're going to condense our all-22 reactions. We're going to put them on Thursday exclusively. And today is fielding the Twitter questions, because we got a whole bunch of those as well. Without further ado, we're going to dive right in. Uh, first one comes from Everett, uh, who asked a very good question, Power of the Pod question. Uh, How does the firing of Bill O'Brien possibly affect the Houston Texans draft picks for the Dolphins this year? Yeah, right now in the draft order, uh, in the waiver wire, Houston sits second, which means if the season ended today, which it won't, the Dolphins would own the number two overall pick in the 2020 NFL draft, courtesy of the Houston Texans. Um... What does Bill O'Brien's firing do for that dynamic? That's a great question. It can go a number of different ways. Romeo Cronell may kind of bring a spark in urgency. He's an experienced coach. He's been around the league for a really long time. I'd expect you'll get a little bit more calm demeanor from that football team. But they came in against Minnesota, and uh, they... They had to win that football game. They knew they had to win that football game, and they didn't. And and I think that the best way that Houston could benefit is no longer having one person, Bill O'Brien, try to do literally everything that there is involved around the team. From contract negotiations, to personnel decisions, to playing time decisions, to game planning, to play calling, to actually managing the game. Like, Bill O'Brien literally did all of those things for Houston. Bill Belichick on steroids as far as his control over his organization. Negotiated the contracts. That's crazy. Well, with Romeo Cornell, Romeo's probably going to sit here and say, okay, I'm going to do this, you're going to do that, you're going to do that, we're going to trust you to get it done, and we'll adjust if it doesn't work. That's the benefit for Houston. The bad news for Houston is maybe the damage is done. And if the damage is done, and to some degrees the damage is done, this defense ain't getting any better with Romeo Cronell taking over as head coach of the football team. The defense is dreadful. Like, they'll probably split with Jacksonville this year. They can play the Titans twice, assuming the Titans ever get healthy. They had two more COVID tests positive today, uh, which puts the Buffalo Bills potentially in a position to claim a forfeit win over Tennessee because Tennessee is – now, this is like 10 days worth of positive tests for the Titans. It's crazy. Houston's defense is a much bigger problem than what Bill O'Brien was, and it's not going to get any better. So I would say our expectations for this Houston team sitting at 0-4, even if they play, f- best case scenario with how bad their defense is, is we play 500 ball the rest of the way. That's 6-10. and 10. That should be a top-10 pick. Top 12 at absolute worst. Good question, though. Alejo wants to know why we don't have explosive plays. Scheme doesn't look for big plays. Bad QB reads. Lack of explosive players on the perimeter. Lack of protection. I think that was a major reason for losing to Seattle besides fits with the two picks. Yeah, I think you're right, Alejo. Um, when you watch the Dolphins throughout the first four games of the season... How many tackles have guys broken after the catch? This was what we said. I remember somebody asked, this is power to the pod. They said, you've, you've talked a lot about the benefits of this style of offense. What are some of the risks? And the biggest risk is teams are going to put you in a 15-yard box. And they're not going to believe you're going to take the shots deep because so much of your offense, passing-wise, is is timing. And they're going to dare you to take those vertical shots. And I'll say this. Fitz had a couple of them against Seattle, and he didn't throw them. He didn't look for them. It was like boom, 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 back foot, balls out. And that's fine. That'll work. But, like, if teams are going to play cover three and they're going to build a picket fence, 12 yards of depth, you got to be willing to to open that up a little bit. And even when we ran the seam routes, the seam route that he tried to throw that ultimately ended up getting intercepted on the back-breaking pick, it wasn't deep. It wasn't behind the second level of the defense. So I do think style of play is a problem. I think players not being able to break tackles. Devontae Parker, you know, he he tried his best to create a couple plays after the catch against Seattle. Matt Breida had the one big chunk play when he got the ball. But other than that, genuine, genuine question. Who's a guy in the open field? that you see him head up one-on-one in open space and you say, oh, he's going to get extra yards here. This offense just doesn't do it right now. Uh, I I think that's a problem. So I think it's a blend of schemes uh, and a blend of the talent of the players on the roster and what their strengths and weaknesses are. Uh, Turo, the Dolphins are clearly a better team than they were last year, so what changes, additions, and subtractions would you do in the coming weeks to improve the team? (sighs) I don't think you make any drastic personnel decisions. You know, if you get injuries that come down the way, you need to pluck the waiver wire for somebody to be on your active roster. That's one thing. But I don't necessarily foresee Miami going after and pursuing any players uh, via trade. I wouldn't advocate for it at this point. Uh, I would want this full season to kind of assess what I have assess what's at my disposal and go from there. Uh, the, the, the Dolphins have a very valuable window here. I just did this for USA Today's Dolphins where I looked at the entire 2020 rookie class, right? And I went through players by day and I asked how have the rookies that the Dolphins acquired on day 1, 2, and 3 the draft handled the first four games of the season? Tua, it's not time. Austin Jackson, Really encouraged by the flashes that he's shown. Noah Igbenogedi, it's tough to get an eval for him because he's playing the Byron Jones role in the defense. Dolphins didn't draft him to play the Byron Jones role in the defense. Otherwise, they wouldn't assign Byron Jones to a record-setting contract. And you kind of go through the list and you think about, okay, that's a four-game sample size. Now, give me three more of those sample sizes. How much can change over that time frame? How our perspectives can shift? The best comparison I can have for the Dolphins is not the end of 2019 to the beginning of 2020. It's the end of the first quarter of 2019 versus the end of the first quarter of 2020. That's apples to apples there. It's the same game sample size, same team, new roster. And let me tell you, we're a hell of a whole lot better. I said that at the end of yesterday's show. I wouldn't make personnel decisions. I would not go crazy on that front. Uh, Obviously, I would... Probably advocate, you know, we get through the Denver game potentially. I'm looking at playing uh, Tua at, at quarterback because it's important for us to get a couple of those sample sizes for Tua. Because here, was here a hypothetical I fleshed out with Jordan Reed from the Draft Network on a video that's going to be coming out. And I'm going to be writing on this in a little bit as well. What do the Dolphins do if the Houston Texans get the number one pick? And by proxy, the Dolphins get the number one pick. Like that's a whole show concept. I'm not going to dive into that. But there were Dolphins fans that said, you know, two is great, and I think two is amazing personally as a prospect. He's the third highest graded quarterback I've given out in the last four years, five years, behind Joe Burrow and Baker Mayfield. Deshaun Watson was four, by the way. But where Deshaun Watson injury away from the Houston Texans, probably getting the number one pick in the draft. I'm not rooting for Deshaun Watson to get injured. I do not want to see Deshaun Watson get injured. But like they you always say, like you're one play away, right? The Dolphins are one play away, one bad play away for Deshaun Watson. In a sunk season for them. Going from bad to worse. And the Dolphins need to know what they have in Tua to the degree in which, if they do get the number one pick, you need to be ready for anything. Somebody's probably going to make you a godfather offer. I would hope that they do. And I hope the Dolphins believe and see enough in two and whatever sample size he gets this year to say confidently he's the guy. But Trevor Lawrence is like that generational quarterback talent. And that's something that at least needs to be acknowledged and fleshed out. It's a weird hypothetical. It's a position that... You know, Jordan just kind of asked it in the conversation. We said, whoa, we should probably talk about this a little bit. So looking forward to fleshing that idea out. But that would be the primary change that I would make, Turo, is I would make sure I get as much of a sample size for two as possible. If Miami loses to San Francisco this week, dude, Denver's not the team we thought they were going to be at the beginning of the year. Just put them in. Let's let's push play. Let's do it. Built Bar is a protein bar that tastes like a candy bar. And when I tell you the... These things are the best protein bar my lips have ever touched. I genuinely mean it, and I meant it before they completely revamped their formula for creating protein bars. With under 200 calories per bar, up to 20 grams of protein, and one-seventh the grams of carbs and sugar of your typical protein bar, Built Bar can be something for everybody, whether you're looking for a delicious snack, something post-workout, or something that's keto friendly. Built Bar checks those boxes for everyone. It is a first-round pick candy bar. Right now, you can use promo code Locked On at BuiltBar.com and save ten dollars off your next order of Built Bars. So visit BuiltBar.com, use promo code Locked On, save ten dollars off your first box, and get yourself a first-round protein bar in your cabinet today. Continuing the draft trend, I can tell the Dolphins have a losing record because the draft questions are a little bit more prominent than, <laughs> than they were in August. And you know what? That's okay. That is, that is part of the luxury of the Dolphins the way they chose to attack their rebuild is the draft is always going to have something of substance for us. So, question comes from Bedhead Cat. Terrific name, by the way. Love the show and appreciate your fandom. Thank you. Draft question. If we end up with a top five pick due to the Texans and can't get a top tackle, do you think we can trade out of the top 10 and still get a shot at Jalen Waddell? (sighs) No. I probably don't. Tackle wouldn't be my disqualifier, though. That's kind of the weird no-man's land the Dolphins are in with this year's class. From a positional value, linebacker's not a great positional value in the top five. I don't think I'm going to pound the war drum for Penny Sewell to be the guy that the Dolphins take. We got Robert Hunt. You can get a Rayshon Slater in round two or three from Northwestern. You can get a Jalen Mayfield in the second round. You can get a Daniel Falele in the second or third round from Minnesota, the dude that's 400 pounds and moves like a dancing grizzly bear. Pene Sewell plays left tackle, which Austin Jackson also plays, which means now you got to flip somebody around. You're kind of reintroducing new questions to whoever goes into that spot. And while Pene Sewell is a stud offensive lineman, I don't necessarily know that he is the difference maker that completely evolves a solid group of guys into an elite group of guys. We've seen bad offensive lines with good players on them before, and the diminishing returns that I can get from getting Penae Sewell on a onto an offensive line and group that I feel really good about versus a tier two guy. It's not so much of a move the needle thing for me that like yes, picking Penae Sewell in the top five becomes a no brainer. But then who do you take? Is it Greg Rousseau? Do you take Jamar Chase slash Jalen Waddell? Is it Micah Parsons? Like, it's kind of a weird no man's land where you're expecting the everybody in the draft community is expecting these quarterbacks to come off hot and heavy in the first three picks. So I will say you're hypothetical for picking in five. And if the Dolphins can't get the target that they want or if they think the value is there, yeah, I'm bouncing back. I'm a million percent bouncing back. Moving out of the top five gives you exponentially greater returns than trades in any other area of the game. How far back can you go and still get Jalen Waddle? 10 to 12? Maybe? And if you do that, you, you better have a guy on backup plan that you like because when he runs in the four twos with the production that he's going to have this year, people are going to notice. And uh, Jalen Waddle is not going to be around long. I can tell you that. Journal wants to know why Mike Gusecki has basically disappeared over the last two games. It's a good question, and one thing I can tell you is it's not his lack of separation or availability as a player. He's still running routes, and he's still getting open. Uh, this this kind of comes back to, we talked about it a little bit yesterday, but uh, the fits, inconsistencies and irregularities. When he's humming and he feels it, and he's got everything pre-snap and he reads it right, Yeah, he's going to kill you. He's going to tear you apart. But when teams change the picture on you, pre-snap to post-snap, that's one thing that really stood out when I charted the Jaguars game. You chart middle of field open, middle of field closed. And what that means is, is there a single high post safety standing in the middle of the field? Or are they playing hypothetically cover zero, in which there is no deep safety? Or you play cover two, where there's two divided deep safeties, and they split the field in half, but nobody's taking the middle. Jacksonville, I think they might have rotated into two deep three times throughout the game, but they always had that high post safety there. You knew so much of what Jacksonville was going to do, and then you take in some of their youth. They can't change the picture quite as well. So Fitz knew so much of what Jacksonville was doing. Now, granted, Gasecki had the one catch for the touchdown, but Fitz was also so crisp with... Making his pre-snap reads and understanding where the, he wanted to go with the ball before the snap, and the picture never changed, that he just kept throwing to the first read because it was always there based on what he saw pre-snap. You gotta work through progressions with more consistency against these better coached teams with more experience, like Seattle. And I think you saw that as far as Giseki was open. Giseki did have opportunities up the seam, in the middle of the field, underneath, running crossers. Fitz just didn't throw it to him. Can't explain it. I wish I had a better answer for you other than Fitz. His methodology to playing the position put him in traps where Seattle was successfully able to manipulate him and get him to throw where they wanted him to throw the ball. William has a galaxy brain take of all galaxy brain takes, and I'm here for it. He said, the only team that would make sense for Houston to trade Deshaun Watson to would be the Dolphins to get their picks back and go into full tank mode for Trevor Lawrence. Would this be something Miami should be interested in, and what would that potential deal look like? Oh, boy. I want to say yes. Anytime you can add an elite caliber young quarterback onto your roster, you should absolutely at least consider it. Consider it. Here's the thing with Deshaun. I'll say this for Deshaun: Deshaun's style of play. You know who the most sacked quarterback in the NFL is through four games? Deshaun Watson. Eleven percent of his pass attempts, he is sacked. Why is that? Well, some of that Dolphins have in, or the Texans have invested very heavily in the offensive line with the Laramie Tunsil trade and everything they gave up to get into that position. You add in Max Sharping and Titus Howard as top. 50, I think Sharping went at 56. So two top 60 picks in the 2019 draft, plus Laramie Tunsil with all that that cost. They made some misevaluations on the personnel front. This is a great example of, of a very good offensive lineman on a bad offensive line. But some of the blame also has to fall back onto the feet of Deshaun Watson. And I think if, I don't think Deshaun would have trouble adjusting to a different style, right? Because if you watch his NFL Game Pass film session with uh, Brian Baldinger, they talk about so many of the option things that are built into his style of play. Uh, It almost turns into a a zone read that becomes a triple option with like routes attached to it. It's very RPO-based and friendly, and I think the Dolphins would make some damage with that. But Deshaun, his wart is he does hold the ball and, and extend plays for too long and doesn't know when to punt on plays. It's also a, a, a criticism of Tua Tonga-Valoa coming out of Alabama and that's led to some injuries for Alabama. Well, the downside with Sean Watson would be he's already got his mega contract. He signed his extension. It's like 40 million dollars a year. Miami would have to weaponize that and say, well, that's a very large chunk of change we're not going to give you the moon and back we're not going to give you our first next year's first your second our second this year some super deal uh, because of the financial implications for the Dolphins I think because of the financial implications of the Dolphins you'll lose a lot of flexibility for building your greater team and therefore I don't think the Dolphins would do it but this that's a really fun hypothetical question William I appreciate you asking that Uh, Kyle Smith wants to know if we should add Bill O'Brien to the Dolphins' ring of honor. You are here for it, and so am I. Uh, Jack, good to see Dolphins competing with playoff teams, but why does it appear we are not utilizing our talent? Do you know why Breed is barely used in the pass game, why Gusecki is not isolated more often, why Grant doesn't run more nine routes to draw a safety that would open up underneath? I think part of the thing about taking, quote-unquote, the top off the defense. That's where I'm, I'm going to choose to focus here, Jack, because I think there's a good point to be made here. Taking the top off the defense only works if you're actually going to throw it and if you hit it. And I don't see a lot of seven-step dropbacks from this offense. You know, you might get some play action back to the defense. He runs the deep over out, or he's running the vertical and Devontae runs the deep over uh, to try and open that up. But the Dolphins have not taken those shots all, all season long. So even if you put them out there, you're going to have to throw it. And you're going to have to throw it in a way in which doesn't really mesh with how the Dolphins offense is built. Seven-step drop back game with this offensive line with Jesse Davis and a young Austin Jackson. They have the physical ability, but they don't sustain blocks for very long. And that's the big risk. Plus, Fitz doesn't have the most dynamic arm anymore. So that's the ultimate conflict as far as like Jakeem Grant. He'd be perfect in the slot if he was durable because he could create, but you don't want to put him in traffic. So yes, they have put him at the Z and they ran the reverse with him against Jacksonville. They ran the fake reverse with him against Seattle. And he's run some routes outside. I think that deep comeback route is probably a better option. Because he will get so much soft coverage. Teams are going to give, 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 give. They're playing cover three. They're going to stay over top of you. You're not going to get over top of cover three defense. So you, you got to face a man team. They got to have bad pass. They, they, I think there's a lot of layers to functionally working to take the top off the defense instead of just saying, oh, we'll put him out to Z and run them on the nine. Because I agree with you, that's a problem. Patriots did it. Jaguars did it. Seattle did it in a lesser degree because they played more cover three, but like their corners on the outside playing deep thirds, they were mirroring, you know, they they were not bail and way off and playing super soft. But Seattle still built the picket fence at 12, 15 yards because they said, we don't think you're going to go over top of this. And if we are, we trust our zone corners who have length to get into the catch point of your receivers. And we never took the shot. Two more good questions I want to make sure we get here. Uh, the first comes from Nameless Jester. Would a lot of pressure from the start to a crowd go away if we'd seen Justin Herbert struggle in his starts compared to the early success he's seeing? I think any time that there's an opportunity to see somebody else have something that you're not having, it makes you want it even more, right? So you're on a diet, right? You, you put yourself on a diet, And you go to a restaurant and the table across from you, somebody gets whatever your order would have been before you decided to put that restriction on yourself. Tell me it doesn't, you don't like, don't even want it more just because somebody else is having it and you're seeing them have it. Of course, Justin Herbert's success impacts and influences Dolphins fans because Herbert's ahead of schedule. Well, I guess depending on what your perspective was. I liked Justin Herbert quite a bit in the pre-draft process. And throughout that pre-draft process, I tried to just prepare everybody mentally for all of the different potential outcomes that there were, including drafting Justin Herbert, which got a ton of pushback. Everybody was like, nope, we want Tua. Okay, well, we got Tua. And the Dolphins are taking their time to make sure they feel completely comfortable when it's his time to go in the game. He's going to be ready to go, and he's going to be his absolute best to do it. Well, the Chargers got pressed into playing Justin Herbert. He looks out of this mind good. He's thrown for 300 yards in his first two starts, and he threw for 290 and put 31 points on Tom Brady last week. Not on Tom Brady, but on a Tom Brady-led Tampa Bay Buccaneers defense, which one was one of the more talented front sevens in football with three backups on the offensive line playing for Herbert. He's looked great. So I'm sure a bunch of the, the people that said, Nah, man, forget Herbert. We don't want Herbert. We want Tua. They're now watching the guy that they didn't want play like this, and they're probably saying to themselves, well, geez, if Herbert can play like this, imagine what Tua can play like for us. Let's get him on the field. Doesn't matter if he's ready or not. He'll figure it out. And to be honest with you, he probably would figure it out. I've seen enough from the offensive line to feel fairly comfortable that as long as Tua's not holding the ball too long, if he plays with a firm shot clock, he would figure it out. And if he makes mistakes like the ones Ryan Fitzpatrick makes, at least he's a rookie and he's not a 16-year vet making the same mistakes. And you get more RPO volume in your playbook. So, I get I get it from the start to a crowd, and I'm kind of in that, that boat now, too, where I've seen enough from the offensive line, my apprehension is gone on that front. So let him play. I want to see him play, too. If Flores doesn't feel as though it's the right time. I will respect that perspective because he's around him every day and he knows what he's like. And he knows what level he expects him to be before he puts him on the field. The last question today comes from M. Pot. What lessons can the defense take from the Patriots game that will help them slow down San Francisco's rushing attack? San Francisco brings a very different running style to this game. They're either going to have C.J. Beathard, Nate Mullins, or Jimmy Garoppolo quarterback. I don't think it really matters which one it is. San Francisco's offense does not change. Where New England caught Miami and where the Dolphins struggled in that football game was New England ran so much zone read, read option, QB power, it was all option based involving the quarterback as a runner. San Francisco is very prominent wide zone play action passing. They've got a ton of speed, they've got some athleticism at tackle. If you can get San Francisco behind in the game and force them to pass, I like their I like Miami's opportunity on that game script. To take advantage of the fact that Mike McGlinchey's not playing really good football right now at right tackle. They lost another starting offensive lineman in the offseason. And haven't really settled on a firm replacement yet. They're still banged up. Debo Samuel's getting ready to come back. He played, I think he got three or four targets last week. Brandon is a rookie. George Kittle came back and played, and I think he got 15 targets. Eric Rowe's not going to stop George Kittle. But at the very least... He can provide him with some coverage. I'm just hoping we don't see the ball like Greg Olson caught last week against Miami, where Roe pulls the ball out and Olson's laying flat on his back and the ball literally just sits propped up on his chest until he squeezes it. That's when you knew it was going to be a long day for Miami. When Olson catches that ball. So... I don't necessarily know that there's lessons to be learned from Miami in that game specifically against New England because New England's rushing offense while they're rush heavy is a very different style of rushing attack. But we'll get into that on Wednesday. We'll get into schematics. We're going to talk about how the Dolphins can build a game plan to potentially and hopefully beat the San Francisco 49ers in week five before transitioning to the Denver Broncos in week six. And then returning home week seven, LA Chargers, Justin Herbert comes to town. Kyle Krabs, Locked On Dolphins. I hope you guys enjoyed today's show. I know I enjoy talking ball with you guys, as always. So keep it locked in right here on Locked On Dolphins. All 22 film observations from the Seattle game tomorrow. Get done working through all of that tape. And then on Friday, we are building the game plan to defeat the San Francisco 49ers. I'll talk to you then.